For many people across the United States, crime in their communities is a big concern. But what a lot of people don't realize is that almost two-thirds of the people who are currently incarcerated have a substance use disorder. Many of these people are struggling with opioid addiction. And we know studies have shown that giving medicines for opioid use disorder in jail or prison can reduce the likelihood of a return to opioid use or overdose after release. We also know that there's some evidence that drug treatment while in prison or jail can reduce reoffending and returning to jail or prison in the future. But very few prisons or jails in the United States actually offer treatment for opioid use disorder. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, and you're listening to Health Discover, a podcast by WebMD. We wanted to find out why more isn't being done to treat people for opioid addiction with evidence-based treatments while they're in prison or jail. We reached out to Dr. Brendan Soliner. Thanks for having me. I am a health policy researcher at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and a major area of my research focuses on the health of incarcerated people, and in particular, the people who are incarcerated with substance use disorders like opioid addiction. So I was reading, and please tell me if this is just way off, that one, almost one out of every 100 Americans is incarcerated, so either in jail or prison, and about 65% um, of those incarcerated Americans have an active substance use disorder. And then on top of that, there's a 20% that of people that may not meet the definition of substance use disorder, but were either under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time that they committed their crime. Is this sort of the scope of the problem that we're dealing with? Yeah, those numbers are roughly correct. So on any given day, about 2 million people are incarcerated in jails or prisons in the U.S. So that's that's a little bit less than one in 100, but many people cycle in and out of jail in a year. So many more people have contact with the um, criminal legal system. And then you're exactly right. About two-thirds of people who are incarcerated have substance use issues. Whether or not they meet clinical criteria for a um, substance use disorder, they often have a substance use in their background and may have been using uh, drugs or alcohol at the time that they committed their crimes. So during a time when we're hearing a lot about crime and people are very concerned in society, why is it important for us to be paying attention to this issue of incarcerated um, American citizens and the care that they receive as it relates to their substance use disorders? I really appreciate that question. So one thing that I always like to say is that um, we can't draw artificial boundaries between what happens in jails and prisons and what happens in the community. It affects all of us in various ways. It ripples out. Um, People who are incarcerated today may be back in the community tomorrow. So that's one reason to care is that we really are interested in affecting this population in a positive way for the health of our entire public. And if we look at the data in terms of especially drug overdose in America, a huge share of people who are overdosing and dying have had contact with jails and prisons. So it's a really high opportunity population to try to influence their outcomes toward the better and improve their health. 
And what are some of the major challenges that you see in trying to address this issue in incarcerated people? Because it does, like you're saying, it does seem like a great opportunity to, you know, identify these folks, get them the help that they need, whether it's medication, therapy, a combination of both. So what are some of the, the obstacles to that? Yeah. So my thinking on this has really evolved over time. And what I've come to understand is that it's really the intersection of systemic factors, like um, the fact that jails and prisons were really not designed to be therapeutic settings of care where uh, high quality medical care is delivered. Um, Regulations, both at the federal and state level, and I could talk a little bit more about why some regulations are getting in the way of um, effective treatment for patients. And then just culture. So um, the culture of incarceration historically has been uh, opposed to treating addiction um, as a disease that we recognize that it actually is. So that has been changing. And there's been a lot of champions within the system who are actually standing up now and saying, we really do need to treat this like a disease. But it does buck the sort of the, the historic norm. So I love it when people come on and identify questions I should be asking them. So please do get a little bit into what you were saying about how regulations, whether federal, state, or otherwise, sort of get in the way. Yeah. So a lot of my work focuses on the treatment of opioid use disorder. And what we know is that the most effective treatments for opioid use disorder are the medications methadone and buprenorphine. And both of those medications are highly regulated by the federal government. So take methadone. Um, methadone typically can only be dispensed to patients at special clinics called opioid treatment programs. And opioid treatment programs very rarely exist in jails and prisons. There's some um, examples where they have been set up and are running quite well. But usually what has to happen is that a jail has to go out into the community and find an opioid treatment program that is willing to allow them to sort of bring medication into the facility or transport their, their residents out Um, into the community to get treated. This is a hugely cumbersome and costly process. So um, basically the only way to get around it would be to create new flexibility in the federal uh, regulations to allow for jails and prisons to treat patients outside of these OTP regulations. And I actually have been working quite a bit on that. And I believe that there's uh, some new possibilities that could uh, open up the the space uh, for greater access for patients. But right now, it's just a very constrained regulatory environment. So, so yeah, I would love to sort of take a step back based on what you're saying. So let's just even talk about what is currently offered um, to patients or to folks that are incarcerated um, in terms of pharmaceutical therapeutics, uh, counseling services, what what is currently there? And I'm sure that that's different throughout the country. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So there's like 2,000 jails and prisons in the U.S., and there's no standard of care uh, for those 2,000 facilities. They each do things their own way. Some of them um, basically provide nothing. And when I say nothing, it means that patients go into jail or prison. Oftentimes, they are in active substance use. And what happens is they start withdrawing, and it is an agonizing, terrible experience for those patients. And they're at very high risk of overdose after they are released. So that is, unfortunately... Uh, a very, very common and distressingly familiar situation. 
there are some facilities that now offer what I would call the standard of care, which is access to any of the three FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder. So I mentioned two of them, methadone and buprenorphine. The third is naltrexone. And um, there are places like the Rhode Island Department of Corrections where patients can get access to any of those three medications while they're incarcerated. So that's really the, the the vanguard, so to speak. And then there's sort of a middle category where some provision of treatment with medications is available, but it's it's not for everyone who's incarcerated. And then, you know, you mentioned counseling. Counseling is often part of um, treatment or, you know, groups like Narcotics Anonymous, Alco- Alcoholics Anonymous. Those exist sort of at varying levels within jails and prisons, but it's really the medications that have been um, the the most difficult hurdle to overcome. And is it with medication? So if you found one to be effective before you're incarcerated, is that the one that you should pretty much try to stay on? So I'm sure if there's limits, like we only have this particular drug that we offer and someone has been successful on another one, is that a problem or is that is it transferable um, in terms of what will be beneficial to you? Yeah, so the the answer is that If there is a treatment that works for a patient in the community, there's absolutely no clinical reason to try to change their care when they're incarcerated. The best possible thing is to allow the patient to stay on the treatment that their doctor in the community worked with them to to, to optimize for their needs. Um, Having said that, you know, it is possible to switch medications for patients. Sometimes that is actually a little bit tricky from a clinical perspective. But, uh, you know, I like to say like, you know, Best possible is offering all effective treatments. Next best is offering something. And then obviously the worst is offering nothing. And a lot of times when we're thinking about this, we're also thinking about costs. So we're thinking that this is going, you know, why should we be investing so much um, into covering the cost of these medications? So tell us, a, I was surprised by, by some of the numbers um, around this. Yeah, well, I guess I would want to flip the conversation on cost a little bit on its head and say, what is the cost of doing nothing? And the answer is, the cost of doing nothing is that we expected, we will expect to see higher rates of recidivism, so more patients returning back to the system, which is expensive for taxpayers, and just like the human cost of addiction, that it's costly for people to be sick. It's very costly, in a sense, for society to have people die young. So um, that's the baseline that I would encourage us to sort of think about the effectiveness of medication treatment. The medications themselves uh, have costs, but the costs are of the medicine itself is not really the, the, the main factor. It's really kind of the startup cost of getting these programs going in facilities. And I don't want to say that it's like the easiest thing in the world because I've talked to many, many leaders who have had to surmount a lot of policy and regulatory obstacles to get programs going. But once they're going, they run pretty well at a relatively low cost. Yeah, I I think this is a great point. So again, I, before this interview in my preparation, I looked at a lot of the numbers and the stats and everything. And so one of the things I read was that it's about currently estimated about $113 billion in costs to society, um, just it, with just the, the costs associated with drug related crime. So if we're sort of look, as you said, sort of like flipping it um, to say, what are the costs of not treating it? That's one data point. And then the second is 
as you say, it's going to look different how you sort of create this intervention in different places, different jails, different prisons, different geographies throughout the country. Um, but all told, there was an estimate of about 14 billion to provide these treatments um, that would be beneficial to people. So when you kind of think about it that way, and I love what you said, when you flip the sort of question in your mind, um, you see that there's just a whole lot of benefits to the individual and to society when you um, when you try to provide the appropriate treatment at the right time. I couldn't agree more. And I think if you look at as a society where we're spending a lot of our money on the drug overdose epidemic, unfortunately, it's a lot on the systems that sort of do the mopping up work. So it's it's the hospitals that are treating patients after they've overdosed. It's the police that are dealing with, you know, crime and problems in the community. It's families that are dealing with the fact that, you know, a, a beloved parent or family member may have overdosed and died. So it's really a lot of these things that we have to start seeing as cost to society that we could prevent. And then I think that kind of the case for doing more treatment and harm reduction will become stronger. Yeah, I think you said something really critical as well, that there are studies that show that overdose, overdose deaths, particularly as relates to opioids, are higher after incarceration um, because of what you said in terms of how people have sort of been forced to detox and now they're coming out maybe without having those necessary treatments and support systems. So talk a little bit about that. They're not only higher, they're about 10 to 100 times higher in the two weeks after being released from jail or prison. So massively higher overdose risk for people leaving incarceration. And um, what we also know is that people who have been treated during a time of incarceration have much lower overdose risk. So when Rhode Island implemented all three medications for opioid use disorder and provided comprehensive reentry support, overdose deaths in that state fell by two thirds. So there really is a very strong overdose reduction argument for providing better treatment for incarcerated people. And what does comprehensive reentry support look like? What's the what's something that you see working? The day that you leave jail, you should be able to one have in your hand an insurance card so that you have a way to pay for the medical care you need. Ideally, and some facilities do this, actually have the medication in your hand, and then have have a relationship with a provider in the community who's able to sort of take you in the next day. A real problem is that people who have been incarcerated are discriminated against in the community. A lot of um, community doctors and uh, healthcare providers don't necessarily want them as their patients. So it's really important to navigate them to places of care where they're going to be respectfully treated and taken care of. Another thing that's really important is making sure that patients' psychosocial needs are being met during that reentry period. So that might be uh, making sure that a patient has um, a place to live, has a trusted peer that they can call, a phone in their hand so they can call somebody for help, you know, access to money for the bus, just very basic needs that often are not met during that period. Yeah, it's so interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, as a primary care doctor um, who has dealt really mostly with patients as they're transitioning out of the hospital, so a place that they're receiving high-level inpatient care with medications and, you know, someone checking their blood pressure regularly, et cetera, which is not the case for 
um, incarcerated Americans. But even there, that transition phase is just so critical for people where you're going from one level of care or one level of having sort of some semblance of day-to-day rhythm to a whole new world. And so you really just need to have that support. Um, And I can imagine, as you said, the social aspects, the psychosocial aspects, along with the medical um, aspects, when you come out of incarceration are are just critical. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's an acutely ill population transitioning from a very stressful experience. So it really is important that there is that um, kind of like safety net there to pick them up after they leave jail or prison. Yeah, and I think along with stigma, it seems to me that a lot of colleagues in primary care just may not feel um, like they have the knowledge um, or the resources to be able to take care of people properly once they are transitioning out of um, jail or prison. I think that it's true that that is a feeling that is widespread. And even among you know, clinicians who don't feel themselves to harbor a lot of personal prejudice may just not know what to do. I think it's a little bit like treating addiction in general in primary care, which has been a real challenge. And the thing that consistently gets said is that at first it seems intimidating. And then at the end, it's like the most rewarding patient population to treat because you see patients getting better. The medication itself is very well tolerated by a lot of patients and kind of does make a big difference in their lives. So um, I'd like to encourage more primary care providers to see this as like a real chance to um, do some healthcare that's not just sort of like altruistic, but is actually going to be rewarding for medical practice. I love that. That is so great. And I think it takes a lot of, you know, a little bit of additional education, a little bit of additional time. But like you're saying, in medicine, we are so striving to see that our interventions are changing people's lives. I think that that is a big part of burnout as as well in the clinical setting. So to see something that is really evidence-based, that has strong evidence behind it, that, as you say, really has the power to to turn people's lives around um, is beneficial to that individual and to the healthcare system and the people working within that healthcare system. That's absolutely true. And um, I think that it's also really an exciting way to feel like you're kind of part of a bigger change in society. You know, I think that many people are aware that we over-incarcerate in our country. And so any difference any of us can make to try to keep people healthy and in the community is just a, a net positive. Anything I didn't ask you that you were hoping to get across today? Um, you know, the the main thing that I really just try to communicate is that um, we are in the midst of a profound addiction crisis. And it's not just opioids anymore. It's a lot of other drugs that unfortunately are um, very harmful to um, vulnerable and mo- marginalized people. And I would say that even though that's a very scary thing, there's a lot of opportunity to to do good, whether it's through treating people during incarceration, but also ideally trying to keep people, you know, healthy and well in in the community, because the most therapeutic place to treat someone is is not inside of a jail or prison cell. It's 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 back in the community. So powerful. Thank you so much for that. Um, Anything else, any misconceptions that are out there that you're hoping to dispel, whether it's in primary care, in the medical healthcare system, or amongst people living in the community? I would just say that um, 
people with addiction get better. Um, people who are incarcerated with addiction often um, have made some unfortunate choices, but they're just like anyone else. And that, you know, it's just important to humanize that population and to realize that um, treatment can make them well and better and that there's a lot that we can do to um, basically reduce overdose risk in that group. To learn more about Dr. Soliner and his research, visit publichealth.jhu.edu. Thanks for listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Batuk, Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine. Access to rehabilitation and resources for incarcerated people is so important, now more than ever. Major question that we as society need to ask ourselves is, what's the cost of doing nothing? Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.